you have your Bibles, turn with me to Hebrews chapter number 10, if you will. I hope you have a prayer bulletin. If you do not, Brother Dave Carter will make his way down the middle aisle. And if you need an outline, we sure would like for you to follow along. When we finish up this part 19, it's part 19D, but we're going to finish it up here, the section of verses 19 through 25 tonight, and bring this section of Hebrews chapter 10 to a close as we continue in our series. And Exciting part here in Hebrews chapter 10, Hebrews chapter 11, as we build up to that uh, wonderful hall of faith and chapter of faith and, and still uh, speaking to very practical things, and I trust we'll find it even this evening a challenge. If you recall, you see it on the outline, we pick up from a couple weeks ago, we've seen first of all, verses 19 through 21, what we've been given in Christ and we're encouraged, challenged to enjoy it. What is that? Verse 19 and 20 talked about that boldness to enter the presence of God. You and I can intimately come before God. We can experience His fellowship, His presence, and His power during that time. We'll speak much of that tonight, the fellowship that we enjoy. Number two, verse 21 speaks of Christ being that trailblazer that leads us into the presence of God. We have that open invitation to dwell with our God through Jesus Christ. He says all that, and then he comes down to verses 22 and following, and he says, all right, now you have it, you enjoy it, we're also called to experience it. How does that happen? Look at verse 22 again, quickly. Let us draw near, uh, let us draw near with a true heart and full assurance of faith, having our hearts sprinkled from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. We said it simply this way, enter, that's the command here, let us enter, and uh, let us draw near, come into it. Number one, you pursue that entrance, and do so um, by being determined and purposefully entering the presence of God regularly. Then number two, purify. We spent some time on that. And we summed up that point simply this way, uh, that you and I are supposed to draw near a genuine, true heart that produces an unwavering confidence. I like that statement, in full assurance faith, okay? Uh, faith of full of assurance, the full assurance faith. Draw near claiming the blood of Jesus Christ as the basis for entering, and so claim it as such. And then number three, draw near being washed and cleansed by the Word of God and the Spirit of God. Then we went to verse 23. We saw the second piece of lettuce in verse 23. Let us hold fast the profession of our faith without wavering for he is faithful that promised and we just talked about how in this verse that word faith is a word in the greek that is commonly translated as hope and more often than faith in fact and so we're supposed to hold fast that faith and hope we said simply this the holy spirit is challenging each of us as believers that instead of allowing things in life the pressures that happen to get us to let go of hope and faith rather we are to cause ought to cause us to grip tighter to the hope we have in jesus christ and we're talking about the usage of the word here, right? And he said, hey, faith is a forward-looking word. Well, the thought of wavering in this verse is a backward-looking word. Okay? It's the idea of looking backwards. It's the idea of my faith wavers. And Peter taking his eyes off Christ, uh, Lot's wife looking back and certainly wavering in that sense. And so we talked about that. And then at the end of this verse, boy, there's strength, there's resolve to hold past our faith. Where do we find that? Not in your ability and strength, not in mine. But we find it the inspiration in what? Well, God's faithfulness, right? We, we look at him, and he is faithful to us, as the verse says it here. He's faithful that promised us. And so we can confidently enter the presence of God with that full assurance of faith, strengthened. We're washed of the Spirit and the Word of God. Now we depart. We're encouraged to hold fast our faith. And we, we made the statement, the clarification statement, we're encouraged to hold on to our hope. That's our profession, because God is the one holding on to our salvation. That's, uh, the verse doesn't say hang on to your salvation, but rather our, our profession, our hope in that. And so um, we, we follow the, the, shall we say, the, 
the line of these pieces of lettuce, right? And we talked about how that first one is, can easily be described as looking upward. The second one kind of uh, certainly looks inward, hold fast that, that faith. And then number three, we come to it, it looks outward. Look at verse 24. And let us consider one another to provoke unto love and to good works. Now, as we get into this verse, this carries over into verse 25, where we'll see that here in a moment. So think with me, if you will. Number three, encourage, okay? Encourage uh, is the thought here. And enter, and then endure, and then encourage. Uh, starts with a focus on others, considering others. The word here is the idea of perceiving others. Opening our eyes, making sure our eyes off, are off ourselves, open to the needs of others. And then, what does the verse say? You're called to provoke them, Look, you see there, provoke unto love and to good works. So uh, I like the, the meaning of the word, to rouse, to excite, to call into action. That's, that's our responsibility as we rub shoulders with fellow believers, to, to arouse, excite, to call into action. Another good way, and this plays into even tonight, is this. We're called to stir up, to stimulate in others. And I like that idea of stirring up. We're, we're supposed to instigate something. That's the idea of provoking. In one another, love and good works. We're supposed to encourage that and instigate it. And we said that that manifestation is in love and good works. What are those things? Well, the things we're supposed to incite in other believers is the evidence, the fruit of both salvation uh, and certainly a thriving walk with the Lord. So our goal and we'll talk about it tonight, as we gather together as a church, as we, we speak and talk and fellowship, our goal is to stir up in one another love and good works. Biblically, it ought to be our goal. And we talked about how that this truth, that this love for God that comes out in one's living, what we're trying to produce in others, um, that we're trying to stir that up as a tangible, measurable aspect of Christian maturity. In other words, that our love for the neighbor and our, that dies to self it is perceptive of others to the degree that we provoke in another believer love and good works uh, that bring glory to God. And we ended up two weeks ago with this simple statement. The selfish saint provokes very little love and good works. They, they come and just sit in the pew. They, they do very little interaction. They, they do not challenge someone else, provoke someone else. They're a bump in a log. They're a sponge. Uh, that's a selfish believer. Uh, they're not developing and stirring up good works in love in a fellow believer. The obedient believer will, will make provoking unto love and good works their purpose. And I love this statement here, pattern when they're gathered with the saints. Their eyes are not on themselves. They're not selfish. They're, they're focused on others. They're trying to stir it up in others and to, uh, to, to bring all three aspects of those pieces of lettuce in their life. And it's a pattern to provoke that in others. Now, Paul brings up one closing thought of this section, a final thought. I think very much it is a, a, a culminating thought because he's describing, all right, here, here's what I've just described that you and I are supposed to have, this, these pieces of lettuce in your life and in my life. They're supposed to be there, and certainly in the environment of your personal walk with God, they need to be there. But he's also saying there's another context, there's another environment in which these things should be present. In fact, it is necessary, it is needed for the good of God's church. Look at verse 25, notice what he says, familiar verse, right? Not forsaking the assembling of ourselves together as the manner of some is, but exhorting one another and so much the more as you see the day approaching. Wow, powerful verse packed full of a lot of things and and I know many ways you say, well, Pastor Henry, isn't this verse speaking to the choir tonight, okay? And uh, hey, we're here on a Wednesday night. A lot of people, we don't go to church but one time a week, maybe two. And boy, we're the guys who come three. I get it. And I understand that. And yet it's good for you and I to be reminded of what God says. Because you know what is good, what is true of any choir? They hit a bad note every once in a while, amen? 
Okay, every choir hits a bad note. I've been a part of many choirs, and we never sing it perfectly. I'll tell you that right now. And so there are some bad notes, mainly because I was in there. But anyway, uh, not every choir is perfect, right? And so reality is, you and I need to be reminded of these truths. It is a good challenge. It is a good reminder. Why are we here? Why are we here tonight? What's God's purpose? What does he want us to accomplish, this assembling of ourselves together? And why is this warning found in Hebrews chapter 10? Because that's really what it is. It's a warning. It is a challenge to you and I as believers. And he says, hey, be careful, be careful. What, what is he talking about? Well, it's been interesting to me to see over the past several decades here in America and even around the world, uh, church attendance with, with different types of um, polling and everything else, church attendance has been on decline for several decades in a row. Affiliation, people's affiliation with any denomination or church has been on decline. And, and it seems like several decades that has been true for sure here in America especially, but even around the world, I'd say. And uh, as that has been true, uh, something has picked up. Something has just grown. And that's the, the number of books entitled in such a way as something like this. Number one, uh, maybe something like this, How to Make Church Work. Okay, how to Make Church Work. And uh, number two, another title that's sometimes out there you see is How to Make a Healthy Church or How to Grow a Healthy Church. How to, how to Make a Healthy Church and so forth. And uh, another kind of idea of these books that are out there have been for several decades. How to Build a Thriving Church. How to build a thriving church. And some of this goes back to the seeker-sensitive movement and, and so forth, things like that. This, this idea of things. My first response to each of these books, and as these things come up and I read it, you know what I think? I sure am thankful there's been a book already written about how to make a healthy church. I sure am thankful. I, I'm grateful. I don't need another book. I don't need to go to CBD. I don't need to go to some bookstore and uh, a digital book. I, I don't need to find a book. You and I don't need to find a book that says, hey, here's how you make a church healthy. Here's how to, no, no, God already gave us that. And its author is the creator of the church. So, boy, I go to the, I'll go to the author who's the creator any day to find out how this thing called church is supposed to work. And I love this passage because there, there's a, there's a uh, uh, I don't want to say hard to notice, but there's a slight change in how he addresses you and I. He doesn't necessarily use the word, but if you'll look at it carefully, verses 19 through 24, we are being exhorted as believers. Those of us who put our faith and trust in Jesus Christ, we are saved, we're believers, and he's really addressing that. He's saying, hey, here's what you have, enjoy it, what you have in Christ. You're a child of God, you're a, you're a, a believer, you're a Christian, here's what you have. Experience it, here's how you experience what you enjoy. But in verse 25, it kind of changes, because he's not exhorting us just as believers anymore. You know what he's doing? He's really exhorting us as brethren, as brethren. Now, he doesn't necessarily use the word. I get that. We'll see a word in a moment that's in that verse that really speaks to this truth. We come to verse 25. He's saying, brothers and sisters in Christ, those who are part of the, the family of God, um, uh, I'm talking to you, <laughs> and I'm speaking to you here. And he's saying it's our responsibility as children, as children of God. It's our responsibility as brothers and sisters of Christ to take the before-mentioned things and now apply them in the context of the assembly of the believers in the local church. You'll notice tonight's a little different. I don't have a regular outline per se besides what we've already given you, but we've added several um, biblical principles that are derived from this passage and certainly the Scripture. Number one is this. Fellowship with God must never become selfish or only singular. Fellowship with God must never become selfish or only singular. 
You see, the Bible does not encourage the Lone Ranger Christianity. The Bible never says that you and I as a Christian should be an island unto ourselves. God is not to be enjoyed just personally. He is to be enjoyed corporately among the believers, among the church. There's a couple key words here, that statement, assembling of ourselves together. That word ourselves, that's the that's word that indicates the idea of brethren. Hey, we're brothers and sisters in this. We're, we're a team in this. We're together. As children of God, we're part of the family. We are a family, literally is what that speaks to. And then the Greek word translated as assembling, I like this. Don't miss it. It's only used two places in the New Testament. This one here, and it's also used in a very important passage in, in 2 Thessalonians. Here's the verse, 2 Thessalonians 2.1. Now we beseech you, brethren, by the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ and by our gathering together unto him. Now that's a glorious picture of what? Well, the verse says it, right? Our gathering together to him, which starts with and is really a description of the rapture. Now, can I ask you a question? If the Holy Spirit saw fit to see to use this Greek word in these two passages, um, could we not? Could we? Or could I ask you the one that's described here in Second Thessalonians chapter two and verse one? When the church is gathered unto Christ to go to heaven, how would you describe that gathering? How would you describe it? Well, I hope you'd say, "Boy, that's going to be a happy gathering." That's going to be a joyous gathering. That's going to be a, 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 a gathering full of celebration. Uh, can I ask you tonight, aren't you going to celebrate leaving this earth? Aren't you going to be excited? I mean, aren't you going to be happy when we gather together with Christ and we're delivered once and for all from this sin-stained world? We have much to be joyful in, um, over because of what we have in Jesus Christ, our Savior. But uh, here's what God's Word is saying. There are two gatherings there are two gatherings, very important gatherings of the church that shouldn't be missed. They're both should be joyous occasions. They both should be times of, of happiness and joy. You know, I, I told you before, I, I'm not a big fan for dead services. We as Christians have every reason to be happy. We have every reason to be full of joy. Paul was writing from prison, and he said, listen, friends, if anything should mark you and I as believers is that we are full of joy, because we have a lot to be joyous in. We have a lot to be happy about what we have in Jesus Christ. I'm not for ball humbug services. I'm not ta if we're taking the air out of the, the celebration of what we have in Jesus Christ and all that you and I have in it. Our gathering should be a time of joy and happiness, because, my friend, we get to rejoice in Jesus Christ. Rejoice in the Lord always. And again, I say rejoice. And so we gatherings, these two gatherings should never be missed. I'll tell you what, I don't want to miss either gathering. The gathering of the church when it gathers together to worship or the gathering together with believers at Jesus Christ's return. Biblical principle number two. You see, as the emphasis and the impetus is put on the gathering together of the church, we find out that this is part of God's plan for how each of us are to make it daily through this cold, hostile world. How do we do that? We gather with God's people. We gather with God's people. Be there when the assembly assembles in his name. Why is that important? Why is this such an impetus of this passage and certainly others? Well, we connect the verses as the Holy Spirit would have us do, the verses of these pieces of lettuce, and then we jump into verse 25 and we see a connection. Here's what we see, principle number three. We're moving right along, but look at principle number three. These three pieces of lettuce start personally, but end corporately. 
Three, three pieces of lettuce. Let us draw near. Let us hold fast our faith. Let us consider one another to provoke unto good works. They start personally on a personal level, my, my personal interaction with God and through Jesus Christ, but they end corporately. What do we mean by the terminology corporately? Okay, We're not talking about a corporate business. We're not talking about a, uh, a Fortune 500 company. We're not talking that type of corporate. When we use the word corporately, we mean as the definition here acting together as a group not individually so the, the impetus on you and i is this individually personally we should draw near to god regularly and then we come together on a service like this we gather together as god's church to do likewise to draw near unto him together we should individually hold fast our faith. When you and I leave this place tonight, and we go many different places, and tomorrow as some are in different workplaces and, and in different stores, wherever you go, you and I are to encourage and challenge to hold fast our faith. And then that hope without wavering. But then we come together in, in a service like this, and my friend, we find strength in numbers. We find encouragement, as the Bible speaks of even here, the exhortation, the encouragement that, okay, I'm not alone in this. I don't have to hold my faith all by myself. I'm surrounded by fellow believers that believe in Jesus Christ too. Can I just tell you, it's good to be part of a family. It's good to have others who are holding fast the faith and find strength in that. And then we should purpose individually to provoke others, to live out our faith. And then we gather together on nights like this and we live it out. We live it out before church, during church. Some are teaching even now and exhorting. Some certainly have already had great conversations where you encouraged someone else. You exhorted someone else. You, you built someone else up. You edified them. You provoked them unto good works. You provoked them unto love. After this service, you'll, you'll pray for someone. You'll, you, you'll experience what it means to be part of a church that prays for one another and encourages one another. Your conversations afterwards, that's what we've gathered to do. We purpose to say, you know what? I'm part of Fostoria Baptist Church. There's work to be done. There's things uh, to be accomplished. There's people to be encouraged. And so by God's grace, we do exactly what we've been called to do in these passages. You see, we're reminded that corporate worship flows from personal worship. How often we've said it, you ought not to come into this building. You ought not together with God's family and think that's the only worship you should be doing all week. You ought to be doing it on a daily basis. You ought to be entering the very presence of God and worshiping and praising Him. You ought to sing in the shower. You ought to sing in your car. You ought to praise your God time and time and time again. So that when you and I gather here, you know what we're doing? We're taking our individual voice of praise that we've used and experienced all week, and we're joining together in a choir of praise. We're worshiping God together. And my friend, there is power and numbers in that. There is strength in the body of Christ gathering together to do so. This is why Paul said, don't forsake the assembly of yourselves again. Not forsaking that. Don't do it. You need it. You'll see here in a moment that it is beneficial for you and I. It starts personally. It starts you and I ensuring that, that you and I are, are worshiping God individually. We bring it together corporately. You see, fellowship with God is sweet. I hope you found that this week. I hope you entered into the presence of God and you found that time with him was sweet. It's like walking in the garden with him alone. It's, it's enjoying his presence. Yet it is also true that fellowship with God and his church together in gatherings like this is sweet also. See, it's why we read that the great goal, one of the great goals of gathering together in this verse. Did you catch it? This is not forsaking the assembly of yourselves together. Did you catch it? But exhorting one another. 
exhorting one another. Now that is a robust word. It, is a, it has a full definition. What does it mean? It means to call near. And hey, hey, come with me. Hey, come with it. Let's do this together. That's the idea, to call near, to comfort, to encourage, to build up, to strengthen, to admonish, to entreat, to teach. All of that is wrapped up into this exhortation, edification, to build up one another. There's a great impetus for you and I not to just come sit on a, like a bump on a log, to sit in a pew, but you and I are supposed to uh, provoke one another into love and to good works. We're supposed to see that the, God has created this environment for the expression of drawing near unto him, the expression of holding fast our faith, and the manifestation of provoking one another after we consider them, to provoke them into good works. You think on this verse, and you know what there's great evidence of? There's a great evidence of the emphasis here not being on what a believer gets from the assembly, but rather on what, can, what he or she can contribute to that assembly. It's interesting that this verse speaks more to the reality that uh, sometimes here in our consumer-driven society, in mankind, in his always attempt to put himself first, it does not appeal to that. Because the, the emphasis of the verse is not, it's not about what you get out of it, it's what you can contribute to the assembly. And herein is a crucial biblical principle that we see applied to many areas of life, but here it is true. I like this statement, don't miss it. Our responsibility is to do and give what is asked of us, and God will in turn give us all that we need. Our responsibility is to do and give what is asked of us, and God in turn gives us all that we need. Now, this is an interesting principle as we apply it to every area of the Christian life. It is one, a principle, a very basic biblical principle that God gave, Jesus Christ gave himself while he was walking here on earth. You know it well, and you could probably quote the verse, right? Matthew chapter 6 and verse 33 says what? But seek ye first, seek ye first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and what happens? All these things are added unto you. You put him first. You put his desire. You put obedience to God first. You seek first the kingdom of God, and he will take care of adding all of these things unto you. And you remember the passage in Matthew 6. He's talking about the cares of the world. He's talking about the basic needs and some other things of life. He says, I'll take care of those things. Now, let's apply that as it applies to every Christian area of Christian life. It applies to the assembling together as a church that is commanded. Can I just be, be honest with you this evening in, in this sense, okay? There, there will never be an end of people who excuse their disobedience to this verse by saying something to this effect. And you've heard it. I, I've heard it since I was a child. I've heard it my entire time, time in the ministry. Here's what somebody might say. Well, I just don't get anything out of going to church. Well, I just don't get anything out of it. And that'll be their statement. And it's an interesting statement. But you know what it reveals? They have not realized the truth present here. What is the truth present here? This principle. Put it in other words, you say this. You will get out of the assembly all you need when you give all that he has commanded. You will get out of the assembly all that you need when you give all that God commands. When your intent and your desire is, okay, God, I'm going to church, and it isn't just about getting, 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 it's about giving. I'm going to obey what your word says for me to do within the local assembly. I'm going to serve, I'm going to minister, I'm going to provoke into love and good works, I'm going to do exactly what God has called me to do. And my friend, when you come to church with the mentality that I'm going to do exactly what God has commanded me to, can I tell you, you will leave here with your cup running over. You will. You'll leave this place with your cup running over. 
Because when you and I obey and simply do as God has commanded, boy, we can't help to be blessed. We can't help to be encouraged. And God has promised what? Seek ye first the kingdom of God and his righteousness. And how many things will be added unto you? All these things will be added unto you. Isn't that an amazing verse? Amazing principle. It applies to every area of life. We apply it to finances. We apply to, to putting things, God's things first in other areas of our life. Certainly. Can I tell you right now, when you come to church, you ought to put God first. I'm going to say that again because it might be a good time for an amen. Amen. When we come to church, we ought to put God first. Okay? Not seek yourself. Not what can I get out of it? Well, I sure hope, man, I sure hope somebody says something to me today. I sure hope somebody encourages me. Well, why don't you go instead with the intent and the desire to encourage someone else? Why don't you say, hey, this is important. God designed this local church, this local assembly, so that I can minister. Here's how I can fulfill what is commanded of me. Here's how I can obey it. I'm going to provoke somebody into love and good works today. I'm going to encourage somebody. I'm going to edify somebody. I'm going to be kind to somebody. And we could go down the long list of things that you and I are commanded to do within the local body throughout the Scriptures, especially the New Testament. Furthermore, you know what's interesting we see throughout the Scriptures, and certainly even in this passage, especially in this passage, even in the previous verses, you know what is identified for us? There is a byproduct of fellowship with God. Both personally, and we've already spoken to it a little bit in our series, both personally and corporately. So when you and I fellowship with God and we fellowship individually in our, in our day-to-day um, interactions with God in our Bible time, in our study time, our prayer time, that, there's a bride product of this. When you and I gather in a service like this and we, we get to enter, we get to draw near to the presence of God corporately, there's byproducts. It's interesting, this, this passage spells it out. You know what? In verse 22, you know what we see as a byproduct? Faith. Your faith is strengthened. You know what else we see? Verse number 23, that faith, that word is translated as faith, means hope. Okay? Our hope is encouraged, it's strengthened. In verse 24, what does it talk about? Love. Love. Now, isn't that amazing? Because Paul says in 1 Corinthians 13, here's the great virtues, right? Faith, hope, and charity. Love. It's a great virtues. These are the things that happen when you fellowship with God. These things are byproducts. They're encouraged. They're strengthened. They're built up in the believers. And here's what I love, okay? If you've got, you got a sick church, if, if there's a church that's struggling spiritually, you know the best thing they can do is fellowship together with God. Spend time in prayer. Spend time sitting at his feet and learning of his word. Why? Because when you and I fellowship with God and fellowship together, whew, there's some great byproducts of that fellowship. There's faith. There's hope. There's love. These things are produced and encouraged during that time. That's why we come to principle <laughs> number five, and it informs that. Notice that, if you will. Okay? Principle number five. When God shows up at church, and that's because his people truly yearn to fellowship with him together and are seeking him, guess what shows up in the church? Love, faith, and hope. And may I just tell you, that's exactly what makes a church work. That's why he says here in Hebrews chapter 10 in these verses, hey, let us, let us, let us. We need to do this, brethren, sisters. We need to do this. Family of God, let us do these things. Not forsaking the assembling of ourselves together where we can draw near together, where we can encourage one another and holding fast our faith, where we can provoke one another into love and to good works. See, when God shows up at church, when you and I seek him and yearn for him with a genuine heart, these things show up in the local body. 
the love, the hope, and the faith. And that's exactly what makes church work. Now, here's what's interesting. We often think of the thriving time in Acts, and we think of the thriving time of the early church. But do you realize that this verse is a warning? Paul is issuing a warning. Why? Well, it's in the form of an imperative, obviously. But something, don't miss this, something has already started to happen in the early churches. He says, there's a pattern. I'm already noticing it. Maybe he's talking about the church at Thessalonica. Maybe he noticed it there. Maybe the church at Galatia. He, he started to see some things happen. Or maybe it was at the church at Corinth. He, he, he went there for a few visits, and there were a few people who were missing that were there the first time. And you know what he's noticing? He's seeing a pattern. In fact, he uses the word manner. Literally, there's a custom. There's something happening in the churches that he was familiar with already in the first century. Already it's happening. It's already creeping in. This custom, this manner, this normal operation. You see how he describes it? Here's what's happening. Some are forsaking the assembly themselves together. Some aren't showing up. Some, when the doors aren't open, they're not coming. They're not realizing the need, the impetus to gather together. They're not realizing what they're missing out on. They're not realizing what, uh, how important the church is for their spiritual survival. You see, as he puts it here, as the manner of some is. You know what he's describing? I put it as biblical principle number six in our uh, handout tonight. It's this. One of the first signs of spiritual decline in one's life is what we see Hebrews describe here. What is that? A fading of faithfulness to the flock. A fading of faithfulness to the assembling of the local flock. Paul had experienced it. Paul had seen it. I mean, some had started to decline spiritually. They, they had let some things get in. We'll see what happens and how that happens, what can creep in here in a moment. But Paul was seeing it happen firsthand. In, in these early churches where the fervor seemed to be so hot, where the fire seems to be hot, and certainly you know, new in many ways, and yet it was happening in his time. He was seeing it. There's people who began a custom, a manner of, uh, of forsaking uh, the gathering together. You see, when Christians are defeated, when they become discouraged, when they struggle spiritually, they often fade from faithfulness to the local church. Those early Jewish Christians too, were the first audience of this letter we might describe. They faced great, great pressures in life, didn't they? They could have easily become discouraged because their families turned their back on them. Uh, they could have been confused because they kept wanting to go back to the old covenant and the, the old ways. And so they began to fade in their faithfulness. You see, we might ask the question, why, why do some forsake the assembling of God's church? Well, we begin in what we see described already here, obviously, as we've mentioned some already, but there was certainly fear in those days. They feared what other Jews would think of them. They feared what the family would do to them. They feared the loss that may be. And so it, it, it worked on them. It, it wore them down to the point where they began to forsake the assembling of themselves together or ourselves together discouragement no doubt as we mentioned struggling spiritually how about today the consumer mentality the consumer i'll just take and take and take the sponge mentality and boy when that isn't fed when that isn't met then we just begin to forsake the assembly what about a lack of priority not realizing the the impetus and the emphasis the bible puts on it that god puts on it for the assembling together and what it means for you and i there's some people who don't like coming to church because they don't like the call that is issued by God to exit one's comfort zone. 
I just don't like to talk to people. I don't like to fellowship with people. I don't like to, you know, it's just, uh, there's just, well, you know what? You know what God wants us to do? Get out of our shell, get out of our comfort zone, and provoke someone to love and good works. So he says. Some people just don't like to do that, so they will forsake the assembling of ourselves together. Some forsake because they, they tripped up spiritually. They've fallen in, in sin. They, they feel like a failure, so why even try? They they're discouraged to that degree, and they have kind of thrown in the towel spiritually so they don't assemble together. Sometimes it's just plain old selfishness and uh, serving self instead of serving God. And then other times it's just direct disobedience. Yeah, I know. I've talked to people. You probably have to. Yeah, I know I'm supposed to be in church. I know God commands it. I know that I'm not supposed to forsake the assembling of ourselves together. I know that, but I know that, but just direct disobedience to the very command of God. The Greek word translated as forsaking here you know what it means this is strong it means to abandon to desert you know ever hear of a deserter from an army someone who deserts their post their duty their responsibility you know sadly we could say today there are some christians who are indeed awol they're awol they're missing in action not because the enemy has done something but they themselves have chosen to forsake the assembly of ourselves together they belong to a church, but they have long abandoned or forsaken the, locally, the local assembly. And it truly is a sad thing. Why? Because they're hurting themselves. They're hurting themselves. Most of us have probably been around a fire. We've been around a grill in which we had many coals there. And if you stir the coals, boy, they, they light up. And that fire and intensity, they glow, they glow red because of the intensity and, and, and the fire and such. And maybe you build them up. And you know, I remember my dad teaching me a long, long time ago in that grill, building up the coals, right, and lighting it and letting it, each one heat the other. And, boy, that just became a, a fiery inferno, if you could describe it as such. But what happens when one of those coals kind of falls away and the coal kind of falls away from the pack and it gets to the side over here and maybe for a short time it will still burn red. It will be fiery for a little bit. But soon and very soon, guess what? It, it cools. And all of a sudden, before you realize that maybe it, it, it has turned a completely different color and there's just a little wisp of smoke that comes from it. And then, and then before too long, it, it, won't be, it, it won't be long and you could reach down and scoop it up with your hand because it has cooled off so quickly. Can I tell you right now, sadly, that has happened to many a Christian because they have separated from God's church. It cooled off. They're no longer getting uh, the, the fire of the rest of the coals. They're no longer enjoying what God has said and what God has planned. This is God's plan for you and I to gather together. Can I just put it simply? Yeah, you know, <laughs> principle number seven. We need the church, and the church needs us. Especially, as he says here, considering the day in which we live. Considering the day in which we live. But exhorting one another, and so much the more as you see the day approaching. We need the church. The church needs us. Each and every believer, each and every one of us. And that motivation, the incentive for being obedient, verse 25 says it again, right? As you see the day approaching. Can I just tell you right now, I'll just be honest, transparent. Yeah, I may have already offended somebody, so let's go for more. I sure don't like this trend we see in Christendom to reduce the number of services a church has. The gathering together. Here's why, okay? And, and, and there's not the New Testament. I know good Baptist churches that meet on a Thursday or good Baptist churches that meet on another day. I'm not saying that. Here's what I'm saying is this. Why in the world do we think it's a good thing to meet and gather less when God says so much the more? 
Why do we think, oh, we, we can go to one, one service a week and we can, we can meet everything there? You know, people are so busy. Well, my friend, let's get busy being the church. Let's get busy doing what God has called us to do and getting these pieces of lettuce and, and doing them, obeying them, heeding them. I don't understand it. Because if I read this verse correctly, and I believe I do, I think it ought to be just the opposite. Well, I'd be dying to get into church. Doing the things that God has commanded us to do, encouraged us to do, challenged us to do to one another, to build up the body of Christ. So much the more. The day approaching, obviously, is the day of Christ's return as it grows closer with every moment that passes. And we have to be honest this evening, boy, the world, the world is in a horrific landslide of wickedness and sin and immorality pummeling towards that day. I have to, I wonder, how does anyone get along without church? How can you be a Christian and say, man, I'm doing great, I don't need the church? That goes completely against God's word. You need the church and the church needs you. You can't forsake the church and thrive as a believer period story is told about two boys they're they're working out in a field and it's a beautiful day and you can see for miles and and as they're working there in the field they're hoeing or doing something else all of a sudden something gains their attention up in the sky and it's a it's a huge jet that's flying over and they both stop their work and you know looking for a little bit of break and so they both look up and they're kind of staring and one of the boys says this boys man i'd hate to be up in that plane up there the other boy looks at me and he says, I'd hate to be up there without the plane. Can I tell you tonight? Listen to me carefully. I sure would hate to be in the world without the church. I sure would. Here's God's plan. Here's what he says. Hey, this is how you and I are going to make it in a cold, hostile world. I want to give you the church. It's a gift. It's a pleasure to be a part of it. But there's also responsibility. So don't forsake the assembling of yourselves together. I like what one preacher said. I think it's a good way to end. He said this, when Christ returns, I don't want him to find me slacking off, but rather stirring up. Remember what that word provoke unto love and good works meant? To stir up. I don't want to be found slacking off. I want to be sure that I'm stirring up as he's called me to do. Remember, what does he say at the end of the verse? So much the more. So much the more as you see the day approaching. Hey, church, there's work to do. Let's gather together and do exactly what God has commanded us to do.